your Bibles to Psalm chapter 51. We're going to jump right in. For those of you who weren't here last week, I spoke on going on a journey of the heart and learning how to give your heart a voice, learning how to be honest with yourself, be honest with God, and be honest with people in community. And I took far too long to make a very simple point. And when the message was done, I had a little bit of what's called uh, the Monday morning blues. It only happens to quarterbacks and pastors, (laughs) where you run through every play in your head, wondering what you could have done differently. And uh, none of that shame is real, but it is true. And I talked to dad about how things went. And he said, well, I'm proud of you, son. You did a good job. But you kind of opened up a can of worms. And so I decided that I would preach again this Sunday and eat the can of worms (laughs) that I opened up in front of you. It also happens to be that one of the texts I quoted, which has become kind of a theme text for my life in this season and on this topic is from Psalm 51. And of course, this very next week, today, one of our readings in the lectionary is from Psalm 51. So I thought we'd take some time to go through Psalm 51, talk about David's perspective on his heart journey toward the Lord. And then we're going to, like last week, jump into the New Testament. Last week, we went to Luke 15 and we talked about how Uh, The two sons in the story of the faithful father, or historically called the prodigal son, but it's really the prodigal sons, in that parable, are both on a journey of the heart toward their father. And uh, we're going to pick up from there, but we're not going to go to Luke 15. We're actually going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So the two texts this morning, Psalm 51 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So I'm going to jump right into Psalm 51 and read this to you. I'm reading out of the ESV. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. We're jumping into David's life in the middle of one of the most traumatic things that has happened both to him and also because of his choices. This psalm was written after David had an affair with Bathsheba and arranged to have her husband killed so that he could cover up the adultery and make her his next wife. And the baby that was conceived out of this union then died. And David writes this worship song. I don't know about you, but after that level of trauma, I would not be in any mood to pen a worship song. But such is the honesty and the truth within David's heart. One of the reasons why he's the man after God's own heart is he would bring himself fully and completely to the Lord in the presence of worship. And out of that place of honesty, out of that place of truth in his heart, he would craft these songs or these psalms. And they inspire the architecture of all modern worship music, not just because of the words he says, but because of the voice he gives his heart. I've heard it said, and I agree with this, that the full spectrum of human emotion can be found in the psalms. Last week, we looked at Psalm 139. We talked about how 
the presence of the Lord is always with us. And one of the parts of Psalm 139 that we didn't dwell on, and one of the parts of Psalm 51 that we won't talk about today, but I will mention it, is there are these imprecatory parts of the Psalms that we always ignore when we're in church. The reason why is because we think of those things as being outside the realm of acceptable human emotion and behavior. And this is one of the things I talked about last week that I struggled with, was I wasn't able to give my heart a voice because I was performing I had a role set aside for myself, and the actor, the persona, Connor Schramm, was the person I was pretending to be. That person was full of faith. He was never angry. He was always righteous. He was always trying his best. And I believed my own performance, and then out of believing my own performance, I suppressed and avoided any feeling or reality in my heart that contradicted the uh, persona I was trying to play. And this is not a good idea. It works, but it's not a good idea. The reason why is God wants a relationship with you, but he cannot have a relationship with who you pretend to be. So if you're wondering where the presence of God is and if you feel his absence, (laughs) in some of the most painful places in my life, I felt like God was not present with me, even though Psalm 139 says that God is present with us always, everywhere, without exception, and he'll even follow us to the depths of the grave. And yet I felt like he was absent because I was playing a role and I was performing a part. And in the role I performed and in the part I played, God was nowhere to be found because he doesn't want a relationship with the you you pretend to be. He wants to have a relationship with the real you. So we have these Psalms where David expresses the full range of human emotions, but we as Christians, as good Christians, we take the parts out that we don't like or don't understand or the parts that definitely don't feel very Christian. Like the part where David says, I'm so angry at my enemies, I wish I could come to them and grab their babies and smash their babies' heads on the rocks. We're like, whoa, praise God. Nobody sings that part in worship. There's, I've checked, there's no hymn in the hymn book where we sing that one. And that made it into the worship book. And so what I discovered was that God has us on this journey where he brings us to a place where we have to confront the reality of our heart and we have to learn to give our heart a voice. And one of the things that happens here is David says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. One of the frames we talked about last week was that, you know, there's one billion people on the planet that profess to be Christians. And then there's seven billion who don't profess to know faith who do not profess to know God as revealed in Jesus. And I I ask this question, what is the Holy Spirit doing with all seven billion of those people? And then I said, um, his first and foremost goal is not to make them all Christians. His first and foremost goal is to bring them on a journey of the heart because it's in the place of honesty or of the reality of heart where we can both see ourselves and then see God. Luke 15, the prodigal son, the first prodigal son, the famous prodigal son, he goes, he takes his father's money, which is basically him saying, dad, I wish you were dead because when you die, I get all this inheritance. So give it to me now because I have nothing more to say to you and nothing more to get from you other than what you owe me when you die. And he goes into the city and he wastes his money on lavish living. And then he ends up with the pigs. And the Bible says when he came to himself, he realized that His father's servants ate better than he did. And he comes up with this script based on shame to come back to the father's house just to get in the building so that he can eat better. 
And so what God first has to do is before he can bring you to Jesus, he has to bring you to yourself. And in Psalm 51, David says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Here's one of the reasons why I think the church has no business bringing condemnation upon people who are in the middle of lifestyles, lavish lifestyles of incredible sin. First of all, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world of sin. But second of all, everybody who sins know that their sin is ever before them. Sin has actually got an inbuilt consequence system. The consequence of sin is death. When you miss the mark, when you behave inappropriately, you know it. You wear it. You can try to rationalize it. You can try to defend it. You can try to explain it away. But your sin is ever before you. Like a cloak of shame. Nobody needs to pile on a person who's wearing a cloak of shame. They're doing it to themselves already. And then David says, Against you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Some scholars and rabbis believe that David here is confessing that he was actually an illegitimate son, that he was the product of his father Jesse's affair. There is no direct reference to this, but it does explain incidentally a few things. One, it explains why when they're looking for the next king of Israel, his dad doesn't invite him in from the fields to be uh, judged by Samuel like the other sons. He's out in the field working like a slave while his other brothers are being showcased. And yes, he is smaller and he doesn't look like a warrior, but it's possible that he is also a bastard child who is an embarrassment to Jesse, his father. This would also explain why David seems to have a leaning toward um, extramarital activity. And even though he's a man after God's own heart, his Sins and his transgressions are sexual in nature. And of course, the one that we're talking about today, the reason why he writes this worship song is because he has committed a terrible thing. The prophet has called him out on it. I don't know if you remember the story, but in the story, Samuel comes to David and he gives David a parable, right? Of a man, a rich man who takes a poor man's only sheep and slaughters it to feed to his friends. And David says, who is that man? He shall be brought here and judged. And Samuel says, you are that man. And you have to remember that David, in the middle of his sin, he's got this Machiavellian plot to have an affair, to steal another man's wife, and then to kill him to cover up his tracks. And he's so dead on the inside of his heart that when he hears about the sin he's committed from Samuel, he thinks the story is about someone else. So he's living subconsciously under a cloak of shame, but he's also at the same time dead to the voice of his heart. And what does the Spirit of God on Samuel do? The Spirit of God on Samuel makes him aware of his own condition so that his transgression can be seen before his eyes, not just influencing his behavior in private. So a lot of people are living under a cloak of shame, but they're not conscious of the shame. They're just living out of it subconsciously, doing whatever they want to do to try to avoid it, to try to rationalize it, to try to defend it, to try to explain it away. And the Spirit of God comes to bring them into an awareness of the deadness of their heart so that they can see the reality of their own condition so that they can be freed from this cloak of shame, this deadness that's keeping them from seeing reality as it really is. And when we talk about this iniquity that David's brought forth in, 
the word iniquity there has to do with a sin that predates you. I talked a little bit last week about the journey that I've been on, and I don't have too much time to go into the details, but I will say this. I began to be so afraid of dying and so afraid of my own physical condition that I lost the ability to manage my emotions. And it got so bad that I was having what I now know were panic attacks. Anxiety attacks where I felt like I couldn't breathe, where I felt like my skin was crawling off my body, and where I felt like I was like seconds away from dying. And what's crazy is is that as I was having these attacks, my rational brain was completely normal. Like my, my rational brain was like, you're fine. Everything's good. You're not gonna die. But I did not feel that way. Because the thing that broke was my ability to suppress my feelings. So my rational brain, which normally would say, oh, that's ridiculous, that's a lie, that's not true. That, That thing that kept that part of myself down broke. So now even the smallest things could set me on this spiral that would unleash this crazy inner reality that I was not prepared to manage. And the worst day was... Two years ago, Easter, I had been struggling with this all through Lent, and I thought, oh, there's spiritual purpose in this. God's going to redeem me, and Resurrection Sunday is going to be my day of victory. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming, as T.D. Jakes would say. I get to Sunday, and I'm at my, my in-law's house, and they've prepared a beautiful meal, and I feel bad, and Leisha can tell I feel b- bad, and she says, go, you need to go lay down. My, my mother and father-in-law are very, very gracious. They're like, oh, Connor, just go have a nap. So I'm laying down. I'm trying to sleep. Leisha turned on a worship song so that I can listen to this worship song. And I feel like I'm teetering on the edge of a panic attack. And I had the worst anxiety attack I've ever had in my life. Like, I felt like my vision was starting to tunnel. And I called her into the room and I said, I actually need to go home. So I, as a 31 or 30-year-old man, got picked up from my in-law's house by my parents and brought home and tucked into bed at 4.30 in the afternoon on Resurrection Sunday because I couldn't handle my inner world. That was not the victory I was hoping for. But it sent me on this journey of the heart where I, I sought therapy and I saw the doctor and all these different things. And one of the things that happened while I was in therapy was um, I'm, I'm having one of these moments <laughs> and uh, it's kind of this emergency session and I'm sitting there with my therapist and she's like, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to sit with this feeling. And I'm like, I don't want to sit with this feeling. I want to run away from this feeling. This is a terrible feeling. This is a bad idea. You, you are bad at this. That's not what I said, <laughs> but that's how I felt, Right? Because my coping mechanism for 30 years was avoid and suppress and deny all of these things. And now they've ganged up on me. Now the monster that I've kept trapped in the closet has grown up and he's much bigger than I am and I can no longer keep him in the closet, okay? So she's like, she's like, I don't want you to, I don't want you to dwell too hard on this, but I just want you to be curious about it. And I'm like, being curious is the last thing I want to be right now. But she's like, what do you see? What do you picture? And She's, and I said, I feel like it's like this ancient, this is, the, this is how I describe it. It was the first thing that came to my mind. I said, I feel like it was like this ancient rock, like this very old stone inside my chest weighing me down. She said, that's very interesting. Just be curious about that. I'm like, I'm already trying to be curious about it. It's just a rock. It's just a picture. It's just in my imagination. 
But we worked through the session, and at the end she said, many different traditions. Now, she, she uh, considers herself a Christian, but she's a very open person, and her therapy is not a Christian form of therapy. She said, many different traditions and perspectives have a different way of talking about this. In Christianity, it's called iniquity. And what it means is, it's the sin you inherit from your family line. She said, it's very interesting. You, you were born in the world, and we like to think of ourselves as rational, enlightened beings, which means that we start as a blank slate. Nothing's, has, nothing's affected us. Nothing's informed how we feel about things. Nothing's informed how we react about things. But in reality, you are inheriting uh, by your genetics, um, by a whole bunch of other things. You're inheriting a way of seeing the world and a way of being in the world. And you're inheriting that from your parents, but they got that from their parents. And how they, how they learned to respond to things based on their own personality disposition is kind of how you start. And you don't even necessarily know it. And before you were able to be cognitive of what you're going through, and while you're still too young to have language, you're dealing with matters that are weighing on your heart that actually came from before you. Now, we could talk about, quote-unquote, original sin. We could do this in a spiritual way. But I've since found out that there are even studies where you can take a child who has never seen a snake before and show them a snake, and they're talking about genetic encoding in memory, where our bodies have actually adapted so that our offspring know a snake is dangerous before they've ever seen a snake. So you have a way of responding to things and being affected by things, and you have a way of dealing with your own emotions before you have language. And David goes, what I've been dealing with came forth in iniquity, meaning I'm dealing with stuff that's bigger than my life, but it's incumbent upon me in my life to deal with them. Now, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you this because your story did not begin and does not end with you. Your story is actually part of your family, and what you're going through in your life and in your heart has more to do with your last name than your first name. We like to think of ourselves as one person with one story, but God sees us as part of a lineage and a legacy, and he's actually not just moving you towards freedom, he's moving your family toward freedom. So if you have to fight the good fight of faith, if you have to fight the good fight of faith, that's a tongue twister, if you have to fight the good fight of faith for yourself, you also are doing it because of your parents and for your children, or your spiritual children, or whoever. And we see this again and again in the story. Abraham lies... Just one time. Then Isaac carries that, and then Jacob is known as the deceiver. Do you understand what I'm saying? (laughs) We see how people make choices, and those choices express themselves in the lives of their children and their grandchildren. But what ends up happening is God, in wanting to deal with your lineage to create a legacy, he doesn't just want to free you. He wants to free those who come after you. And he's not just judging your life based on your individual choices, based on some high watermark that everyone's measured by. He actually looks at your family, and he looks at your life, and he looks at your disposition, and he sees where you are, and the Spirit of the Lord wants to bring you from where you are into greater freedom. And then if you stop where you are, your kids will probably start there, and he'll bring your kids into even greater freedom. So what you go through and the, and, the, and the journey of the heart that you're on, the fight that you're fighting, it's not just for you. It's not just so that you can be free. It's so that those who come after you can be free. 
is so that the waterline of your experience in freedom continues to go up. Okay. Purge me with hyssop. Oh no, I'm going too, I'm going too far forward. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is what we talked about last week. There is secrets in our heart. Um, uh, in Psalm 139, uh, D- David says, You see the secret places in my heart, and you read my heart like a book. So come into the secret places of my heart, into the shadow places, because the dark is as light to you, and teach me wisdom. David is saying, You actually know everything there is to know about me, but I don't know everything there is to know about me. Like, you can see my heart and the truth that's in my heart, but I can't because I'm suppressing and avoiding and denying. So please come with me into my heart and reveal to me what's actually going on inside me. Read me like a book, O Lord. And so this is really the journey that we're on. David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, here's the first thing that I want to just quickly distinguish between what I would think and what David thinks. I don't think that God needs to hide his face from your sins. But I would say that when you choose sin, shame leads to blame. It leads to a desire to hide We have this really comical moment in the story of Adam and Eve, right? They sin. They were walking with God in the cool of the day. They sin, and then they decide to stitch leaves together to try to hide themselves from the almighty, ever-knowing, ever-present God, which feels comical, but it's also really true of our own condition. Sin does not mean that God cannot look upon you. Your sin changes your perspective on what God is capable of and makes you feel like hiding from him. This is how shame breaks us. Shame makes us want to hide and blame. So they stitch leaves together, and then as soon as God finds them and inquires as to why they made these choices, they start pointing the finger every which way but to themselves. Because emotionally, they're still trying to hide in their shame. There's actually only one verse in the whole Bible that directly says that God cannot look upon sin. And what the prophet is saying in that verse is, he says, you cannot, you're too holy to look upon sin, so why are you looking upon me? (laughs) Meaning, shame teaches us that God has to create distance from us when we stumble. But shame is wrong. And sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we're reading the subjective account of what someone is going through and the honesty of their heart. And David is going, I'm suffering here. Clearly, you must have put me through this. You must have broken these bones in me because I'm all out of joint. So can you heal me from what you did to me? And I would go, according to the God revealed in Christ, nothing that happened to David was God's fault. God didn't lead him to sleep with Bathsheba. God didn't lead him to kill Uriah. The broken bones David is suffering under are (laughs) self-inflicted. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I used to think of this verse as David asking to be forgiven of his sin because he knew his sin somehow resided like dirt in his heart. But now I read this verse in light of what Christ taught me 
in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Purity in heart is not about having a perfect track record. Purity in heart is about being honest enough in your heart so that you can encounter God in your heart. So when David asks to create a clean heart, what he is saying is, I'm finally ready to look upon my own condition and and to be honest about what I'm really going through. And in doing so, I will have a right spirit to encounter you and to encounter your truth. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold a willing spirit within me. So is God's presence always with us? Because remember, we looked last week at Psalm 139. David says, where can I go to escape from your presence? If I make my bed in hell, you're going to be there. If I go to the depths of the sea, if I go to the beginning of the morning, to the start of the dawn, you're going to be there. And then after David sleeps with a woman, kills her husband, brings her into the household and loses a baby, he goes, God, please don't cast me out of your presence. And is that not the human condition? When you, have, when you feel close to God, you're like, God is with me. I am blessed and highly favored. I'm so, oh, God is everywhere. He's like, he's everywhere, right? And then you do one wrong thing and you're like, God, where are you? Where did you go? We have to read the Bible realizing that God has given authors permission to be honest about the experience of the human condition. You actually cannot be cast out of the presence of God, but you can sure feel like it. And if you take the whole Bible and you try to harmonize all the texts, you can come up with these weird and wacky theologies where it's like, yes, God is always with you except for when you sin, and then he ditches you. It's like, no, that's not what actually happens, but the sin and the shame and the brokenness that you incur will change your subjective experience of yourself and of God all around you. This is why when I've had people who have begun to make broken choices, consequentially, they always tell me, I feel like God isn't real. I feel like God doesn't exist. And I I humbly submit to them this idea that the Father is waiting on the porch for them. The Father's love has never departed from them. But their own choices are creating the perception of distance in their own experience. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Why does God want a broken heart? Well, I think it was best put by the prophet Leonard Cohen. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. A lot of people think, especially religious people think, the goal is somehow earthly, platonic perfection. That if only I could be perfectly clean, and if only nothing bad had ever happened to me, and if only I had never made any bad choices, then I would be one with God, and I would be one with everyone else, and I would be one with the universe. And in reality, that sort of of thinking is really bogus. It's um, It's actually more pagan than Christian. I'm not saying that God causes the brokenness, but God uses the brokenness because the brokenness of heart is the kind of honesty that looks upon the reality of your own condition, even if it scares you, even if it seems to take you away from the life you wanted or from the faith you thought you had. 
that sort of brokenness of heart is where God wants to encounter you. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is now Paul talking about the journey of the heart. And we're just going to quickly go through this because what ends up happening is when we are willing to be this honest about our heart and our own condition, we end up admitting things and questioning things and sometimes doubting things and being affected by things that we never thought possible or we never would have wanted. Some people have taken to calling this sort of journey of a broken heart, they've taken to calling this deconstruction. Has anyone heard the phrase, the term deconstruction before? Basically what it means is it's like you have faith, so you construct this faith, and it's generally made in the image of the faith you inherit from your parents. You go to church, you believe certain things, and then maybe it's you know, a certain class at university, or maybe it's just a certain experience, or maybe it's a loss that you have, a death in the family. Some sort of thing happens that breaks your heart, and when it breaks your heart, it also seems to break your faith, and you find yourself questioning things and doubting things and trying to figure things out again. And I would like to tell you that it's actually, even though it's super scary, and even though it might feel antithetical to the truth, it's actually a healthy part of growing up into a mature faith. And so Paul wants us to be honest about what's going on in our heart, and he also wants to outline for us how the Spirit of God moves upon all eight billion of us to lead us to a place in our heart where we can finally see who he is. Paul says this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So when I said that the goal, the first goal of the Holy Spirit is not to lead the 7 billion people who do not profess faith in Christ to become Christians, the reason why I say that is because that's the last step, not the first step. The first step is to become so aware of the veil that's on your heart, the veil of shame, the veil of brokenness that's keeping you from emotional and spiritual honesty. But Paul says that when that veil is taken away, that's when Christ can be seen. And it's only through Christ that the veil can be taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and when the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Again, we talked about this last week. The agenda of the Holy Spirit is to make you fully and truly free. Not free with strings attached. Not free with a certain agenda for your life but actually and completely fully free. Now, in the beginning of faith and in the beginning of spirituality, you build a kind of relationship with God based on religious practices that's actually super healthy. It's like liturgies, like when I go to church, I raise my hands, I sing a song, they teach me a memory verse, and I have a very elementary school understanding of how this works and where God is and how I have a relationship with him, okay? Now, in that understanding of faith, in that conception, it's easy to think about freedom as... Um, the freedom is 
the ability to make whatever choice you want to make. So people who lose that kind of constructed faith go, oh, whatever, I can do whatever I want because I'm free. But if you're older than a teenager, you know that that's not real freedom. Right? Freedom of the outward experience is the freedom to do whatever I want, but there are certain things that do not lead me into freedom. So I would have these conversations that always felt philosophical with the stoners in my high school because all stoners are philosophical. <laughs> and they would say, you're so bound up by religion, man. You just got to relax and live a little. That's how they sounded. Haley's like, you're being ridiculous. It's not how they sounded at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm basically just pretending to be like in the movie Dazed and Confused. Um, <laughs> But I would have these people that would say to me, hey, you're not free because you restrain yourself and you restrain your choices and you could do this and you could do that and you could try this and you could try that. A relative once told me, you really shouldn't, uh, you really should take a break from your relationship with Leisha and try dating other people because you've only ever loved one person and really you need to try other women out before you pick one. And I was like, that doesn't sound like freedom. That's not, that's, that's, yes, that's external freedom, but the kind of freedom we're talking about the Holy Spirit leading us into is the kind of freedom where we are fundamentally, externally, and internally free. Right. So a lot of the things that we do when we're first constructing our faith, we say, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to protect ourselves externally, but internally we're not really sure whether what we believe is real. So I grew up in a household that said, and again, I'm not shaming my household, but I grew up in a household that said drinking alcohol was sinful, but the reality was I had a grandfather who was an alcoholic who threw our family away for the bottle, and I made a, a kind of faith that said, drinking alcohol is sinful. Good Christians don't drink alcohol. When in reality, I was in bondage to fear. The fear that I would end up a drunk like my grandfather was. And I missed him. Every day of my life growing up, I missed him. So I built a moral boundary that told me freedom looks like prohibition. And what ends up happening is if in order for God to lead you into freedom, he has to confront the places in your life that are constructed on fear and not on love. So one time I'm sitting at a restaurant with my wife. It was on my honeymoon. And my wife came to me like the serpent in the garden. She said, would you like to try a pint of beer? I said, woman, I rebuke you. But I'm sitting in this Bavarian restaurant and I hear the Holy Spirit speak to me. He says, you have gotten this far on a boundary that was made by fear. But I was the one who made wine at a wedding and I am not afraid of alcohol like you are. Yes. Some of you are like, oh yeah, thank you, Jesus. I'm going to get a pint right after church. That is not what I'm saying. <laughs> See, here's me opening another can of worms and I'm going to be preaching next week to fix this sermon. That's not what I mean. If you have a, a certain conviction that's built on your relationship with the Lord, please protect it. Paul says that if something is sin to you, it's sin, meaning you have to trust the conscience that the Holy Spirit has given you as a gift, okay? But I'm simply trying to say that in my life, I built a faith that was constructed on one idea, and the Holy Spirit actually had to help me deconstruct that idea. But then it becomes scary because the thing you thought you knew ends up being doubted. 
And you actually have to let go of something in order to embrace something new. Deconstruction is maybe not the greatest example. Maybe a better word for it would be renovation. The faith you have is too small, so you have to tear down part of your heart to let God open up new wings, new avenues, new space for your heart to exist. If your faith is too small, your heart will be constrained and you will not be truly free. What, the, what I mean by this is that doubt is not the enemy of faith. If you're sitting in the room and you're like, I wonder if God actually exists, that's actually a very legitimate question to ask yourself. Faith is not conviction based on certainty. Faith is trust based on relationship. Charles Blondin was the first man to walk across the tightrope over Niagara Falls. 10,000 people gathered to watch him do it, and they watched him walk all the way across, and when he got to this end, he said, how many of you believe that I can walk across Niagara Falls? 10,000 people went, yay! We believe you, Charles! We believe you! Then he said, how many of you want to get on my back and walk with me back? Nobody said yes. So we get 10,000 people Sunday after Sunday going, Lord, I believe you! I believe you! He's like, yeah, but who wants to hop on my back? Here's the crazy thing about Charles Blondin and walking across Niagara Falls. He did it with a, with a wheelbarrow, right? The dude was good enough that even if you didn't believe you would make it across and you still got in anyway, you would make it across. He wasn't good at walking across the tightrope because you believed in him. See, again, in this elementary school version of Christianity, we have Tinkerbell faith. It's like, I got to believe in God to make him powerful. I got to clap to bring Tinkerbell back to life. So we stand at the front and we go, come on church, press in, pray harder, believe more. It's by faith that mountains are moved. And people are like, ooh, I got to pump God up somehow. <laughs> it's like God's going to make it across Niagara Falls with or without you. The choice is, do you want to get in the wheelbarrow? So there are people who actually don't believe in God and still come to church, and they're actually still moving forward in their life. Our irrational, individualistic mind says, that's not true. If I don't believe in God, why would I participate in Christianity? Because you actually don't know what the stink you believe. You think you know what you believe, but it's only when someone comes to you with the wheelbarrow and says, do you want to get in? That's actually the choice to trust in faith. If I decided to get a divorce the moment I didn't feel like my wife loved me, like how dysfunctional would our relationships be if we base them on that kind of faith, on that kind of belief? Right. Instead, what we do is we make relationships out of trust and we say, you know what? I'm agreeing to this and I'm agreeing to walk this way. And if there are doubts and if there are concerns and if there are pains, I'm still going to stick with this person. I'm still going to walk with them because that's what a covenant means. So what I'm saying to you is that if you're in this room and I invite you to go on a journey of the heart and some of the stuff you're starting bringing up is scaring you, that's okay. Because you're not in because you're certain about being in. You're in because God's got a wheelbarrow and he's invited you to sit in it. He's invited you to trust him even when you doubt him.
And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world is blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I want to quickly tell you what it means in the Bible, what the word sanctification means. The word sanctification is primarily not about God saving you and then making you incrementally better. A lot of people think that when they become a Christian, the goal is to go on this journey of faith where God, you know, fixes my swearing problem, and then he fixes my drinking problem, and then he fixes my relationship with my wife, and then I get better at finances, and then, and then one day, when I'm 80, I become like Jesus, okay? <laughs> and people are like, wow, Connor, you arrived, you did it, and I'm like, yes, I was sanctified, <laughs> step by step. That's actually not how it works. This is how it works. The way it works is, we have a veiled face. Our choices, our beliefs, our convictions are based on a deadened heart that does not understand ourselves. And the Holy Spirit brings us to the reality of our heart and he allows the veil to be removed so that we can see reality the way he sees it. And then as we behold him, we become like what we behold because we are made in the image and likeness of God. Our faith is not built on believing in Jesus out there, but believing in Jesus in here. Our faith is built upon believing that Jesus is the prototype for us, for our own human experience. The reason why people have encounters with God that don't change their life is not because the encounter wasn't real. It's because they have neglected to believe that the person they encountered is them looking at him in the mirror. When you have an encounter with God, you are having an encounter with the God revealed in Christ who doesn't just reveal to you what he's like, he reveals to you what you're like. And if you have an encounter with God and you don't believe that the person you're seeing is in fact a revelation of who you truly are, the encounter won't help you. So what Paul says is, is that the, the process of sanctification is not about becoming better. The process of sanctification is about believing better. Because when the veil comes off your eyes, you're looking at Christ as though you're looking at yourself in the mirror. And if you don't believe who you're looking at, you will never change. <laughs> A mirror does not reveal who you are tomorrow. It doesn't reveal who you are yesterday. A mirror reveals who you are right now. And the reason why we incrementally grow from glory to glory is the Holy Spirit takes a lifetime to convince you of who you really are. And right now you're sitting here and you might not believe me. We have a whole bunch of unbelieving believers and I'm one of them. We might believe in Jesus, but maybe the foundation is not believing in Jesus, but rather believing that Jesus has transformed us in the image and likeness of God. So again, with this elementary school faith, sometimes we end up doubting it. We end up wondering if it's real. We end up wondering if we can question it. And actually, it's the Holy Spirit that's leading us to that to bring us into freedom. Because he wants to renovate our heart to create more room for a more robust faith that's not just built on Jesus being out there, 
but Jesus being in here. Jesus not just being revealed as a deity up on a throne somewhere, but Jesus as standing in a mirror looking back at us saying, I am the prototype for who you really are. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of God shines in our hearts to reveal the face of Jesus Christ. You know what God is doing for all eight billion of us? He's revealing the face of Jesus Christ by shining light into our hearts. And when our hearts are illuminated, we see the face of God as revealed in Jesus. But not just the Jesus of history, not just the Jesus of the scriptures, the Jesus of an encounter with a God who is present in all things and fills all things with the word of his power. I truly believe that there is no social revolution, there is no transformation of love, there is no care for the sick, the elderly, there is no confrontation of poverty, there is no end to war without the face of God as revealed in Jesus Christ, illuminating the hearts of men and women everywhere. And the reason why there is no end to the increase of his government is God is able to do this even when you are not consciously aware that he is revealing his face to you. I went to the Middle East and I met with as uh, my uncle John Archer who was here in, in uh, August, the beginning of August. I met with MBBs, Muslim-born believers. They still call themselves Muslim. They still go to um, their... Mosques, I was going to say they're masks, different thing. They still participate in the Muslim faith, but they have these encounters when they dream of the man in white. The man in white says, I am the way, follow me. The man in white doesn't say, well, let's go down and find your nearest Bible. <laughs> it's a quick way to get killed in some places. But he says, as I, as the man in white, am the way, care for the sick among you. Care for the poor among you. What if Jesus is leading us on a journey of the heart that is less about what we convince our head of and more about what we let our heart finally see? It's scary and dangerous to really let God into the shadow places of your heart. But when you do it, you will see the face of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So can you, can you put up the heart tool again? I want to quickly go over this again because some people weren't here, but also because it's a little bit broader. And I, I want you to be clear. I didn't, I didn't make this. I just compiled it from people who are smarter and wiser than me, okay? If you want to go on a journey of the heart, this is how I had to learn how to be honest about what was going on inside myself, okay? I would ask myself these questions or I would fill in the blanks on these statements. I feel blank because I blank, meaning... I need to be honest about how I'm feeling. And I went into greater explanation about this last week, so I won't take the same amount of time this week. But it's basically about being honest about what's going on in your heart. Your feelings are, are meant to be indicators. They are not just an alarm system. They're an alarm system when you're suppressing and denying and ignoring. But your feelings are, are essentially the language of your heart, the language of your soul, okay? 
I feel blank because I blank. The reason why I is in there is because you need to take responsibility for what's going on in your heart. I used this example last week, but when someone cuts you off in traffic and you say, I feel angry because they cut me off in traffic, that's actually not why you feel angry. They're not powerful enough to make you feel angry, but when they cut you off in traffic, it probably created some shame that you're running late. So then you ask yourself the question, I want blank. What do you want? Like, what do you desire? Like, and it could be the, like, I want breakthrough. Yeah, that's the spiritual answer. But like, you can say, I want a cigarette, right? People who haven't smoked in 10 years are like, I still crave cigarettes. That's actually an indicator of something that's going on in your heart. You can be honest about it. Don't be afraid of it. What do I need? Again, we can spiritualize the answer as good Christians, or we can just be honest about what we need. And then finally, what does love say? And I used the example last week, like if you can't hear the voice of the Lord speaking to you in your circumstance, then just imagine the most loving person who has shown you the most compassion and make up something that they would say to you. And that's probably closer to what you say to yourself. Because remember, when shame and brokenness get in the way, we end, up, we end up making God out to be our enemy. And we end up feeling very disconnected and very distant from people. And then, so I will blank. And then you are able to make a choice based on what you know your heart to be. Now, I want, you to, I want you to be aware that this tool is actually how you communicate with other people. And this sermon is the bridge between our previous season, which we call the Summer of Soul, and our season in the fall, which is all about conflict and communication. We're calling it Fight Club. We're just going to talk about conflict. We're just going to talk about communication. This is actually a guidebook. This is a playbook for how you deal with people. Because when you are in a conflict with a person, you're actually always not just face-to-face, but you're heart-to-heart. And when you're dealing with people and you're on this journey, remember, when things are being deconstructed within you, it's like, I don't believe in God this week. I don't, I don't necessarily want to come to church. I certainly don't want to come to church and tell people that I don't believe in God. That would not encourage anyone. Hey, brother so-and-so, how are you? Good. Oh, I don't believe in you. This is real. Bless you. It doesn't, doesn't feel good, right? It doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like it's permitted almost, Right? But what ends up happening is is if we want to be honest about what we're going through, then we have to be willing to face a confession of the reality that we're going through. And then we need to walk this out in community. So we say to one another, hey, this is how I'm feeling. How are you doing? Someone says. I feel shame right now. Can you imagine answering the question that way? It would scare the living daylights out of people. But this is what it means to walk in honesty as a community It means that we're willing to practice the ancient art of confession. I'm going to bring the reality of my heart, not just to me, but to other people. I'm not just going to let the Holy Spirit into the shadows of my heart. I'm going to let the people I trust and I'm doing life with into the shadows of my heart. How are you doing? I'm feeling shame right now. Like right now, I'm feeling shame. Like it's... 1240, I'm aware that I'm 10 minutes over time and I really want to get to the end of this and I'm also keeeping people from lunch. I'm feeling shame right now. (laughs) What do I need? What do I want? What does love say? When you bring these tools to other people and you say to them, hey, this is what I'm going through. Like, I'm really struggling. I'm really feeling the brokenness of my choices. I'm really feeling doubt or unbelief or concern or indifference. I'm feeling apathetic. Someone else says to you, well, what do you need? I don't know what I need. What do I want? Help me figure out what I want. 
But when you get to the point where it's what love says, the other person has permission to speak on behalf of God and confront the shadow in you. This is why we have to go on this journey in community. This is why we're going to create a culture that feels tumultuous as people begin to work out their own process. This is why I said the very controversial thing last week, if you're going to not live clean, still live close. (laughs) I don't want perfect people here. If you're in the middle of your mess, bring your mess to church. Not so that we can fix you. Not so it's like, well, Jesus saves, brother. No, don't, don't doubt. God's real. <laughs> Cheer up, old chum. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. So what does work is when we get honest about our own heart's condition and we bring it to one another, we give other people to permission to speak on behalf of love. And if you stop believing in God, you don't have to stop believing in love. Because God is love. If you show up and you say, you know what, I don't actually buy any of this stuff, but I like these people, we're going to love you with the love of God. Mm-hmm. And you're going to continue to be enclosed in his love, whether you believe in him or not. <laughs> so this is how we go on this journey. We go on this journey through the process of being honest in our hearts before God, confessing the reality of our heart to other people, And then doing life in community so that as we work through what's actually going on in our heart, we can grow in a life of love. We can grow in a life of freedom. And I just want to pray for us because I really know the cost of this. It took two years of emotional crisis for me to be honest with myself and with other people. And... I don't want it to take two years for you, but I do want you to be able to go on this journey with God to get a bigger faith and a more real heart condition, even if it costs you something. Even if it costs you the deconstruction of the old elementary school faith that you once had, okay? I'd like us to get in the wheelbarrow together and then let Jesus walk us across. <laughs> this feels scary, right? David says this in Psalm 23. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but you are with me. It might feel like the death of everything you know and believe about yourself, but that's where you find out God is with you.